Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. You're listening to Interchain FM, a podcast about all things blockchain interoperability, DeFi, and NFTs. We're here with a layer one project called Say. And yeah, uh, thank you for having me on. What do you do for the project? Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders of Elite Engineering. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've been working on this for around a year in total now. Mm-hmm. And you work with Deedle, who used to work on another project, right? Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, how did you guys come to build this project? So I guess a little bit about myself and about the project as well. Um, I personally got into crypto back in 2017. My roommate, he was going through Binance Launchpad at the time, and then afterwards, um, we worked on a few different projects together. Um, afterwards, I ended up joining Robinhood, spent almost four years over there. Um, and over there, I saw the company 10X, and it was definitely interesting because one thing that the company did really well is they were able to get retail to start trading options, which no one else has been able to do. Known in DeFi, known in TradFi, and Robinhood did that, so that was very impressive. Um, on the other hand, the way that Robinhood handled GME was a total mess. Um, and lack of transparency, I mean, whenever there's a lack of transparency, that just results in things blowing up, which we saw most recently with 3AC as well. Um, so because of that, last year, my co-founder Jeff and I, we decided to start working on a derivatives exchange on-chain, um, basically something like Robinhood doing it on-chain. Um, so that was what we originally started working on. And then we started looking into every layer one, every layer two, and all the other structure out there. Um, and we ultimately came to the conclusion that none of the other infrastructure out there right now really works um, to support exchanges. First of all, there's a lot of congestion issues, um, which is tolerable for NFT collections, but catastrophic for DEX. Um, secondly, it's still a tad bit too slow, even the newer chains like Aptos and Sweet. Um, and lastly, there's no DEX optimizations that have really been made on general purpose chains. Um, and this isn't really even the fault of their ones themselves. This is because DEXs are uniquely uh, finicky types of applications that have really high throughput and latency requirements. Um, so because of that, we started work on Say, which is a layer one that's optimized for trading, um, helping give exchanges an unfair advantage. The other thing about Robinhood, Citadel was basically using it for data and processing it so that they could trade ahead of retail the, traders that are using yeah, Robinhood. So there's a system of PFOS that is Robinhood's uh, main revenue model. Um, so Robinhood would be routing trades through Citadel and other market makers, and they would be giving Robinhood, um, I guess, money in exchange for that. Mm -hmm. um, it's supposed to lead to the best price for the user. There's this concept of NBO, which is National Best Bid and Offer, I believe that's what it stands for. Um, so there's like whatever price NASDAQ and other exchanges are trading at, market makers are supposed to give uh, users a better price than that. So it's supposed to be positive for customers. Um, but the NBBO is only looking at like the visible trades that are happening. It's not looking at dark, pool, dark pools and other kinds of mm -hmm. um, hidden um, kind of trades that are occurring. So. Mm -hmm. It's questionable if it really results in the best experience for the user, but that is the experience that um, Robinhood users and honestly, a lot of other uh, brokerages give to their users. Well, that being said, does Say have anything that protects retail to give them the best trading experience? Mm -hmm. And maybe you could talk about the intention and what reality looks like. Yeah, so we make use of uh, frequent batch auctioning. So the way that that works is any exchange that's building on top of Say and making use of the underlying order matching engine um, 
the way that trades are going to get processed is that we are going to aggregate every single market order together at the end of a block and then execute them all at the same uniform clearing price. So what that means is that within the scope of a block, um, the ordering isn't going to matter for any order book related transactions. Um, so as an example, let's say that the order book has two orders on it, one for $10 a second, one for $11. What would normally happen on Serum or other exchanges is first one will get processed for $10. Like first market order that comes in will get processed for $10, second one will get processed for $11. Um, let's say they would both get processed at ten dollars and fifty cents. So, uh, from a user point of view, that will lead to more price fairness, and it doesn't matter what your ordering is within the block. Um, with that being said, I mean MEV is a massive um, area, and there's a lot of complexity and nuance around that. So, uh, there still are potentially ways for validators to try to, um, for example, exclude user transactions within one block and include them in another block. That's one thing that could potentially happen. Um, and another thing is that this only applies for order book related transactions. So if someone is making use of an AMM or another type of um, exchange on say, then this won't be completely solving for uh, front running. Right. So in this case, even though transactions within blocks get uniformly processed at a same price, yeah. this doesn't mitigate block by block based sandwiching right, by the validator. To, yeah. So if there's multi-block MEV, that is something that can still be affecting order book related transactions in theory. But that would require coordination between different validators. And one thing that we're looking into is randomizing the uh, ordering of validators. Um, mm -hmm. So that will help make it impossible for validators to actually coordinate unless there is, like, unless they just end up getting lucky, essentially. Um, but yeah, the random randomness of validator ordering will help. If you're doing that, that's that's a change in Tendermint consensus, isn't that? Because Tendermint's deterministic. The protocol is. So if you're creating random randomness in validator ordering, then that would mean that you So it needs start. to be deterministic within a height, but this would be making adding randomness between different heights. So that's not going to matter in terms of having multi-block MEB because that's across different heights. Uh, default Tendermint will not be having that randomness, but that's one thing. Like we're making a bunch of modifications at the Tendermint and Cosmos HCK level. Um, so that'd be one of the changes that we're going to be making. I mean, yeah, a lot of the changes that we've been making, we've actually forked both Tendermint and Cosmos at this point. Um, so this would be updating our fork around that. So this will not be like right. some small modification to Tendermint. Um, but we do plan to upstream a lot of the changes we're making right now. What are the edge cases with this? Um, with the frequent batch auctioning model? Yeah. So I think the biggest um, edge case over here is that, say, is an L1 chain that's meant for all types of exchanges, not just order books. Um, and we've added in this order matching engine for order book style exchanges. But any other activity that happens, that is going to be... Um, not going through this order matching engine. So it's not going to benefit from frequent batch auctioning. So around that, like if you have an AMM built on top of state, it's going to be difficult to completely prevent running in that case. Um, so what we do plan to do is we do plan to have something like flashbots where if there's going to be like, we would appreciate if validators didn't engage in this, but it's completely impossible to rent what validators are doing because they can run their own custom binaries. Um, so because of that, we're going to be at least having a way for the protocol to be um, benefiting in addition to the people that are searching and identifying. We just talked to the Skip Protocol guys, and they sort of lightly touched on, say, is there work between the two of you to prevent uh, MEV on, say? Yeah, so we're actively chatting with Skip right now, um, really smart team. And yeah, I mean, we'll have some more updates around what the actual implementation looks like, but we're chatting with them around ways that we can work on MEV on right. together. In, in Say's case, it's definitely interesting because we have really flat, uh, fast block times. Um, right now, in our internal testnet, we saw around 300 millisecond block times. On our devnet right now, we're getting around 600 millisecond block times. Mm -hmm. um, and the skip model requires that there be a off-chain process that is running that is collecting all these transactions. 
and then has an auction on these transactions and then runs a simulation on it. Um, so because of that, it results in a scenario where um, you don't have that much time to actually have an auction and then run the simulation of the transactions to make sure they all go through. And if you have like a six second block, it's much easier to do that if you have a 600 millisecond block. And then you also need to submit that bundle of transactions to make sure it's part of the actual block that is proposed. Um, it gives you not that much time to be um, running through that auction. So we're working through the mechanics of what that would look like with them, but it, it should be possible. From what I understand, say is a layer one whose particular application of blockchain tech is to address the decentralized exchange use case. Exactly. So we noticed that exchanges right now, they're not really benefiting from general purpose chains. And exchanges are one of the biggest use cases of crypto, right? Like they're one of the few things in crypto that have true product market fit, whether it's AMMs or exchanges or like even NFT marketplaces. Um, so we think that that's something that really needs to be, there needs to be more specialized infrastructure to help these exchanges Right. Scale. So if you're an exchange that's looking into the Cosmos ecosystem, you know, why would it pick Say instead of, I don't know, Juno or Secret Network? Yeah. So there's three things that Say does from a technical side that is very interesting to exchanges. Um, the first one is the native order matching engine. So in the case of Juno or, Setwork, or Secret Network, um, there's nothing built into the chain to help with an order book style exchange, right? In the case of Say, we have the order matching engine that's built in the chain itself. So one of the things that that helps with is frequent batch auctioning. Besides that, it also leads to a better market maker experience because you can actually bundle multiple orders into one transaction. So if you're a market maker, you want to update, let's say, 30 different markets, you can submit one transaction on Say, and then the chain will know how to process that. Whereas in other cases, you would need to submit 30 separate transactions. So um, the native order matching engine is a, definitely a pretty significant improvement in terms of helping exchanges scale. Um, the second thing that we're doing is around twin turbo consensus. So we've changed the way that consensus works um, in terms of block propagation and block processing. Um, and through that, we've helped improve latency and throughput. And the last thing that we've done is we're the only Cosmos chain to make use of parallelization. Um, so through that as well, we've been able to get better performance. And at this point, we're seeing around 22,000 orders per second that we're processing with around 450 millisecond block times in our um, internal testament. I mean, a lot of it is honestly just bound by network latency and tendermint. There needs to be a pre-vote that happens where everyone needs to get two-thirds consensus, then a pre-commit that needs to happen where everyone gets two-thirds consensus. So there, there ends up being a lower bound for what you can get with having these multiple rounds of voting because there's just like network latency types. Parallelization, let's talk about that. That's something that people are starting to talk about only as of a few months ago. So why is that now a thing? I think that in Web2, parallelization has been one of the main mechanisms used to improve performance for a long time. Um, the only problem is that it's difficult to implement that in a deterministic way in Web3. Um, in Web3, you, need, you have all these different validators. And if you're running things in parallel, it's difficult to ensure that you get the same output, um, which is okay in some cases in Web2, and that's what ends up being used because there's only one machine that needs to be running things. In Web3, you need to have all the machines getting a deterministic output. Um, that is the same. So the first chain that became really big that is making use of parallelization was Solana. Um, and then I think it became a lot more popular recently because Aptos and Twi are both doing it as, as well. So it's a pretty common way to um, improve performance in Web2. So a lot of those same ideas are carrying over here. So in our case, we ended up noticing that the end block processing was CPU bound. So what I mean by that is the order matching engine happens in the end of the block. So there's the begin block, there's TX where you sequentially go through every single transaction. And then there's an end block, which is where we had the order um, matching engine logic running. And we noticed that that was CPU bound, which means that it was we're just crunching a lot of numbers. And that's what was taking a lot of time for the entire, um, I guess, for the orders to get matched and filled. 
So the most normal approach for um, solving that in Web2 is to make use of parallelization, which is exactly why we decided to do that as well. Um, and we were able to figure out how to deterministically make it work. Um, so that's how we're able to get better performance um, in the case of say. What does that even mean, parallelization? Yeah. So normally, um, if you look at Ethereum, for example, transactions are executed sequentially. So that means one transaction comes in, it gets processed, then another one comes in, it gets processed, right? Uh, in parallel With parallelization, you can process multiple things at the same time. So for example, um, transaction A and transaction B might be running at the same time, and that helps save the amount of time it takes to process them overall. Um, and in our case, we're doing that at the order level, so we're able to process orders across multiple markets at the same time. In Bitcoin, and transactions are uh, processed sequentially because you you want to prevent double spending. Mm -hmm. So if you're parallelizing transactions uh, and let's say Bob or you're Bob and I'm Alice, Bob sends a transaction to Alice mm -hmm. and then sign, sends the same transaction, sending those tokens back to Bob. Mm -hmm. And if it's parallelized, then you've... Exactly. Bob has effectively double spent Alice. Exactly. So the core issue comes up with when multiple um, processes, multiple transactions are trying to trying to update the shared state. Um, so that's that's what you need to watch out for. So you want to make sure that if you're parallelizing something, it's not going to be modifying shared state. Um, so that's why the way that we're doing it is independent markets are going to be processed in parallel. So for example, if you have a Atom perp market and then you have a, let's say, Bitcoin spot market, um, in that case, these are not dependent markets at all. They're not touching the shared state. So we can process them safely in parallel. Um, but let's say that there's two orders that are coming in for the Bitcoin spot market. Um, then in that case, you can't be processing them in parallel. So what you need to do in that case is to process them sequentially. So um, yeah, we we ask uh, when, when a new market is being created through governance and we're requiring dependencies to be established, and these dependencies can also be updated through governance. Um, and through that, we're able to create basically a DAG of the dependencies between the different markets, and then we can process them in parallel. I mean, how does the protocol know when a transaction is a double spend versus a legitimate one in a singular market? Yeah, so I mean, there's two different approaches to how to prevent people from trying to parallelize access to shared state. One approach is requiring dependencies to be created up front. This is what uh, Solana is doing. This is what Sui is doing. This is also what Say is doing. The other approach is to optimistically just try running everything, identify conflicts, and then afterwards just rerun the things where there are conflicts. And that's what Aptos is doing with Block STM. I personally think that the first approach is better because then you only have to run computations once. And that's what we're doing right now. So we ask different markets to be identifying dependencies between each other. And that way you can prevent them from trying to, like transactions that are going to be touching dependent markets from being run in parallel. Um, the block SCM approach is pretty interesting, um, where you basically have everyone, like every single transaction tries to get run in parallel. And then the ones that are mutating shared state, um, they all get identified. And then afterwards, they all get run sequentially again. Um, the downside of that yeah. approach, like the, in, in the happy path over there, where there's not too many um, accesses to the same state, in that case, it ends up being a lot faster. Um, so let's say you have 100 transactions, some of them touch shared state. Well, you can easily execute them without requiring any dependencies to be uh, defined up front. Um, but what generally ends up happening in any kind of application is that there's going to be a few hotspots, right? There's going to be a few places where there are a lot of, like where there's state that's being mutated by multiple things. Like this could be a DEX, this could be like an NFT marketplace. Um, basically some, it's always going to end up being these applications that people want to be using. Um, so in that case, you're just going to try running everything once, it'll fail, and then you're going to have to try running everything again. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's why I think the approach where you just define dependencies up front is, is going to be faster. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to tell you about Interchain FM Steak. Interchain FM is not only a podcast, but also a steakhouse. IFM Steak is a premium, sushi-grade steakhouse running on Osmosis, Umi, and Comdex. If you get your alpha from this podcast, show us some love by delegating to Interchain FM Steak. Yeah, this sounds awfully complex. I, can, you, can you help me understand Solana's way of parallelization and what the trade-offs are? Just because from an outsider's perspective, the chain halts a lot and it's also more centralized, mm -hmm. at least in the start, mm -hmm. compared to other proof of stake networks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how, how, do you, how do you reason about those trade-offs? Yeah, so overall, I think Solana has done a fantastic job given the kind of problems it is trying to solve. Um, a few different questions you asked over there. The first one is around parallelization. Um, in Solana's case, they require the accounts that are being modified. So in their case, they call the state that's being mutated accounts. Um, so the accounts that are going to be modified in any transaction, they're required to be provided upfront so that C-Level knows how to be parallelizing these transactions. So similar to what we're doing, we ask markets to be defining dependencies upfront. In their case, they ask that all the accounts that are being updated just be defined upfront. And then afterwards, it's easy for them to parallelize that because they know what the dependencies are. Um, that's that's the first thing. So that does help improve performance in Solana's case. Um, the second thing that you asked about is around their outages. Um, I think that's because they're using an approach that doesn't have instant finality. So they end up having more uh, forks and reorgs that end up happening. Um, and that's why I'm more of a fan of using a tendermint style approach, where you do have to go through multiple rounds of voting and you do need to wait for two thirds consensus. And it doesn't scale as well compared to other consensus algorithms. Like if you increase the number of validators with tendermint, it, scale, it scales with n squared, which is not the ideal scenario. Um, but it does lead to instant finality and it does help prevent these issues, like these synchronization issues that Solana is running um, into. And the last point around centralization, I, I personally feel that there's not that big of a difference between, let's say a validator set of 50 and a validator set of 5,000. It does matter in terms of optics, but in terms of actual decentralization of stake and like decentralization of voting power, it generally ends up being concentrated in like a few people's hands anyway. Um, it, I, I tend to agree with that. And, and that's more relevant for the ETH ETH POS case, yeah. but in Solana, it's more egregious than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. isn't stake concentrated in just like five, you know, like under 10? Even even in Ethereum's case, there's like CoinMist and Lighter that have like- Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And that's that's extremely egregious. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, the ideal scenario would be if everything was truly decentralized, but um, at least like every single, like the Nakamoto coefficient, if it was as high as possible, that would be great. But I mean, what's in a practical standpoint, what generally ends up happening is that it does end up being concentrated in the hands of like 20, 30, 40 validators. But, but, yeah, but in, in the Solana case, it's because they optimize for parallelization, yeah. uh, but extremely high hardware requirements. Yeah, so I think so that's, that's that barrier. Yeah, so I think that there's like two different issues over here. One is around the actual number of validators and the centralization of stake. The other one is around the complexity of running a light client, right? Mm -hmm. So in the case of Solana, their hardware requirements are super high. And I think that's the thing that is make that is like worth some decentralization perspective. Like you need to have a bunch of GPUs to be running any kind of Solana node, um, which helps with their proof of stake um, consensus. I guess technically not, whatever their their proof of stake mechanism. Um, so that that's the part that is I think negative about Solana. Like normal people can't be running full nodes. They can't be running validators either. So and even running a light client is very which I, I don't means they can't verify their transactions on their own without some sort of centralized. Uh, gatekeeper. Exactly. They're an Infura equivalent for them. 
Yeah. So in Say's case, we're very thoughtful about like we're definitely thinking about this. Um, we don't need GPUs for any of our validators. Our validators basically just need to be machines that have multiple cores. Um, we actually looked into the cost of running a validator on AWS right now. It's less than ten thousand dollars. So from a normal kind of institutional perspective, it's very reasonable to be running something like a validator on say. Um, from a normal user perspective, like yeah, ten thousand dollars is definitely too much. But we're working to enable light clients as well, and there's nothing fundamentally preventing that. Preventing that would say. In order for this parallelization to happen, is that a network wide protocol or is it a validator client side thing? Uh, the parallelization that is happening, like the market based parallelization, was mm -hmm. said. Uh, that's something that'll be happening. That's part of the binary itself that we have protocols run. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll be happening at the, like each validator, validator will be running that when processing transactions. Mm -hmm. So that'll be running on each validator. Uh, our okay. block production mechanism is, so for parallelization, we're basically creating a DAG of dependencies, but the block production itself is going to be following normal consensus. Okay, tenderbring Yeah, tenderbring consensus logic. So block proposer will look at their mempool. They'll create transactions from that. Uh, the parts that we've tweaked, um, the first part is around block propagation. Um, so rather than basically sending a full block um, and having that be the only thing that we send as part of block proposals, uh, we're going, we're modifying the block proposal itself to include all the transaction hashes so that when a validator receives a block proposal, they don't need to wait for block parts to be sent over the network. They can just construct the entire block locally. Mm -hmm. We've changed the block propagation layer, and then we've also started doing optimistic block processing. Mm -hmm. So rather than waiting until after pre-commit to start processing a block, we started processing it when the block is received um, for the first block at any given height. And mm. that updates a candidate state. If that candidate or if that block ends up being good, that candidate state ends up being committed. And if that block is bad, then that candidate state is discarded. So the way the tenderman normally works is let's say I'm a block proposer and you're someone who's validating the block that you're going to be voting on it. So I will create a block and then I'll send you a block proposal. That block proposal will have the hash inside of it of the entire block. And then let's say that there's two, like the block gets broken up into two parts. So then I'll send you block part A, and then I'll also send you block part B. So from your side, you're waiting for the block proposal, then you wait, then you wait for block part A, then you wait and you wait for block part B, and then you can get started with pre-vote. So what's bad about this is that your mempool typically already has all of the contents of block A or block part A and block part B, because the content of the block is just transactions. It's like entire transactions, and your mempool already has received these entire transactions. Um, so that was the insight that we had. And then we actually ran metrics to see what percentage of uh, blocks or transactions are already in validators' mempools. So we found that 99.99% of the time, validators already have every single transaction that is there in the block that is being proposed. So validators end up just waiting, even though they are they already have all the transactions in their mempool. So um, because of that, we started changing the way that block proposals work. So what we do now is in my block proposal, I will include transaction hashes. So let's say there's five transactions. So I'll include transaction hashes for A through E. Um, and then when you receive that block proposal, you can just look at your mempool. So you see transaction hash for A and the way things are stored in mempool is it has key to the transaction. So it'll you could just see like in OF one time that, okay, I have this transaction already in my mempool. And then you can see that for all five of them. So you can just construct that block. Locally. You do a checksum. Exactly. So you can construct the block locally and then you can find the hash, make sure it matches the hash that is there in the block proposal. And then you can start um, validating the block without needing to wait for the block parts mm -hmm. being sent across the network. So we found that that actually improved performance by around 40%. And I mean, from our side, that was massive because we've already changed all the low-hanging stuff. Mm. Um, we already like worked with Zaki and Marco to improve the configurations at a tenement level. We already added in parallelization. So any any significant improvement like that is a huge win for us at this point. Mm -hmm. Got it. Hmm. Seems easy enough. You should talk to the Crescent folks because they were 
uh, complaining about the uh, optimization of, of, of exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, just after chatting with a bunch of folks from the Cosmos Tendermint communities, it's become clear that there are a lot of things that can be improved about the way the Cosmos and Tendermint work. Um, for a lot of teams, it's not really top of mind because they're not running into the throughput requirements where it would really start to matter. Um, but that's like one of the things that we're focusing a lot on from the start, just making sure the infrastructure can handle pretty high scale from the get-go and then afterwards supporting um, even, even higher throughput. So going back to the DAG part, let's talk about that. What we're doing right now is around the parallelization piece uh, for making use of the DAG. So that's just requiring... So so is which is the cart and which is the horse? Like, do you need a DAG in order to parallelize or because you're parallelizing, you uh, need a DAG? We are making use... Like, we need a DAG in order to parallelize so that we know what the dependencies between different smart contracts uh-huh. are. Okay. Um, and I think... So DAG, like DAGs in general, are becoming more interesting in crypto because of Narwhal, which is uh, at the mempool level. That's one thing that we're looking into as well. Um, the way that Narwhal would work is that rather than... What is Narwhal? Um, Narwhal is a different way to, I guess, create your... Uh, have transactions get propagated as part of your mempool. So then you can have different consensus layers building on top of your mempool. Um, so yeah, like the, the way that Nar- uh, Narwhal would work in our case would be all the validators, they would receive transactions from normal users. So let's say both the Fusser validators. Uh, what normally happens with Tendermint is that I receive a transaction, I'll send it over to everyone else in the network. And that ends up running into throughput, um, into an upper bound in terms of the amount of throughput that we can get through the network. But instead of doing that, if I'm just able to hold on to all the transactions, have a transaction batch, and then I propose that transaction batch to other people, they vote on it, and then they say that they've received it then we can have the mempool contain a bunch of these transaction batches rather than having individual transactions. And this allows a greater amount of throughput to get. Okay, that's normal? Yeah. And then afterwards, you can use different consensus mechanisms on top of it. So Tusk would be one that's uh, commonly used with it. Bullshark is another one that was proposed in a paper. I think that's the one that Sui is going to be using moving forward now. Um, and then there's also... Sorry, you're, 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 you're saying... Different chains could be using different consensus mechanisms yes. uh, with with Narwhal. Yes. So Narwhal can be one building block, and then you can make use of either, uh, you could even make use of Tendermint on top of Narwhal. So that's one okay. thing that folks in the Cosmos community are looking into as well. Right? Okay. And, and Narwhal, simply put, is the process of batching transactions instead of... Uh, it'd, it'd be how you construct, yeah, it'd be how you construct the transactions or the contents of the mempool. Is this specific optimization for proof of stake networks or does it also optimize Bitcoin, for example? Uh, that's something that I have not thought about. So actually, yeah, this could be used with the proof of work network as well. The mempool layer is one piece of it and then the actual mechanism through which you get consensus is another piece. So yes, this could be used with the proof of work network as well. It's, it's interesting now that we're in this generation of um, blockchain evolution and now people are thinking about improvements uh, on the on the mempool. It's just none of this has happened on on Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, there's I think in the case of Bitcoin and Ethereum as well, there ends up being first of all, it's just very decentralized, so it's hard to get anything done. Um, but the second piece is they try to have consumer grade hardware running all of this. Um, so if you have like in Ethereum's case, for example, like one of the reasons that I fundamentally don't think that L2s can scale on Ethereum is because there's a maximum amount of gas that can be consumed in any block as part of Ethereum, right? And the reason they don't want to increase that is because that would change the amount of, uh, basically it would prevent normal users from running uh, a full node on Ethereum or on Bitcoin. Um, so that makes it running a light node. So 
that makes it, um, I think just from a theoretical standpoint, that is why the community is kind of against making major changes like that. Uh, they, they basically want to minimize the hardware requirements to be running in a Ethereum node, whereas in the case of using a lot more complex things, it ends up requiring greater hardware requirements. Even though, say, would require the greater hardware requirements, it's still accessible for everyday validators? Yeah, I mean, for everyday validators, it's extremely easy to run a validator on, say. Um, it's, I mean, even for our internal testnet right now, it's less than $7,000. And I mean, realistically, it's not going to become like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to be running a validator on, say. Um, but that's still more expensive than your garden variety tenement chain. Uh, that yes. Like any it'll, runs. Yeah, so it'll be more expensive, slightly more expensive than other chains. Um, but it's not going to be like a fundamentally different type of machine that you need to be running this. We just want to be using a machine that has slightly higher RAM. It has uh, more cores that are being used in the CPU. But besides that, it's not going to be like fundamentally changing what kind of machine needs to be run by having like GPU requirements or something like mm. that. Back to the DAG. I guess I, we still haven't covered um, how the DAG works. Uh, yeah, I mean, so from the parallelization side, we just require governance to be like, let's say you want to create a new market. Well, wait, let's let's back up. What is a DAG? How does, how does it work? <laughs> yeah, so a DAG is a directed acyclic graph. Um, the way that it works is it's just a type of graph where you can't have two nodes, uh, where you can't have a cycle in the graph. So I guess if you have, let's say, nodes A, B, and C, a DAG would be like A pointing to B and then A pointing to C. So a, a linked list would be one node pointing to another node, so it would just be a line or a list of nodes. With a DAG, you can have one node that points to multiple nodes. Um, that just says that this node is a dependency on these two nodes. So you can't do anything for these two nodes until this one node is done. So how this matters for parallelization is, let's say you have these shared resources, this shared state. Um, you can say that this shared state is going to be a dependency for, let's say one specific market is a dependency for two other markets. Mm -hmm. So you can't run market A, or you can't run markets B and C until market A is done being run. So it's just a way to define dependencies in uh, a way without having any cycles in the graph. Uh, how does it work on say? Are there any housekeeping items that you would like covered or announcements that you want to make? Sweet. So the, the first thing that's really interesting that's happening on say right now is Nitro. Um, so Nitro is an optimistic rollup running the Solana C-level VM on top of say. So the way that optimistic rollups would work in Ethereum's case is there will be some off-chain process that's running. Um, and then transactions will get submitted to that off-chain process. And then afterwards, in an optimistic rollups case, call data will get written to the main chain along with an update of the state. And then afterwards, people could just verify that that call data and that state hatch, they are valid. Um, we're going to be doing something very similar in Say's case. So there is Nitro that is building on Say, or Nitro is an off-chain process that is running. Um, that'll be running Solana C-level virtual machine. Um, so any kind of Solana smart contracts can get forked over onto Nitro. And then people can write any Solana Rust code and deploy Solana smart contracts over there as well. Um, and then there's two things that will need to happen. The first part is that there will need to be data that gets written to say. Um, so there will be two things that are written. One is the call data, which is the actual transactions that happened in Nitro. So every single transaction that happens will be compressed and then written onto the core chain. Um, the second thing that will need to be written is the state hash. So the off-chain process is the one that's responsible for keeping track of the state. And then afterwards, it'll just compute a hash of that state, and then it'll write that to the core chain. That's the first thing. That part's honestly pretty um, similar to every other optimistic rollup. And the second part is a fraud-proof process. Um, so with optimistic rollups, you're optimistically assuming that the off-chain process is not being malicious. Um, and then you're going to have different verifiers that are just checking to make sure that the state hash that is submitted matches the call data, so the actual transactions that have been submitted. So 
all that data is available on chain. So say it's being used for data availability in that case. And then there'll be verifiers that are also running off chain. Uh, they'll take the state hash, they'll take all the call data, and then they'll just compute whatever the new state is to make sure that there's no um, inconsistencies over there. The reason that we're uh, very excited about this is because we don't think that say in the long term should be tied to one execution environment or one programming language. Um, if you look at Web2, like no one really knows what programming language like Amazon or Google or any other big tech companies coded in, and it honestly doesn't really matter. Um, but right now in Web3, there's a very strong kind of tie to if you're building any product, like the coding language that is being used or the execution environment that's being used ends up being a very strong um, association with that product. And we think that doesn't really make sense. We think that in the longer term, Web3 is going to be much more of a product-driven space and the actual underlying technology that's being used for it shouldn't really matter as much. So that's where we're really excited about Solana um, C-Level VM because outside of Ethereum, Solana is arguably the biggest community of developers out there right now. Um, and right now there's nowhere else for them to go besides Solana. Whereas in Ethereum's case, there's, I would say like a dozen or two dozen other EVM compatible chains and rollups. Um, so we're very excited about giving Solana developers a home in the cosmos and helping them get um, connected to other Cosmos chains. Yeah, so in the future, we definitely see that there will be, like, especially if Nitro ends up being successful, we think that say it will be a natural next place for other rollups to be built as well. Um, the fundamental conclusion that we're coming to is basically everything needs a way, like everything that happens in crypto ends up having some kind of assets that get created, and then these assets need a place to get traded. So even if it's like NFTs or games, like the there ends up being these assets, in the case of games, it might be these in-game NFTs and then came with NFTs um, after the mint process is done, people have these like profile picture um, tokens. And then there, there needs to be a place for them to get traded. So the best place for them to get traded is on a trading specialized chain. So um, we think that there's going to be a lot of ways for uh, the projects building on these rollups to work with the underlying state chain as well. In a world where there's Osmosis and myriad other DEXs in Cosmos, is say growing the pie or are we in a zero sum world? Oh, so it's absolutely growing the pie. I mean, Cosmos is such a small ecosystem right now. It doesn't make sense to say that it's going to be a zero-sum game in the long term. Um, and I mean, first of all, say is not even directly competing with Osmosis. So it'd be the projects building on, say, the DEX is building on, say, that are more, um, I think, uh, competitive with Osmosis. But what we are doing is we're helping draw in a lot of new developers into the Cosmos ecosystem. One example of this would be with Nitro, right? Nitro is bringing in Solana developers, which hasn't really happened before in the history of Cosmos. And... Um, even like the folks that have participated in our fundraising, there's a lot of market makers that are going to be coming to Cosmos for the first time and providing liquidity to the Cosmos ecosystem for the first time. So I think that definitely in the long term, Cosmos, like there's like, I don't think any of the Cosmos projects are long term going to be um, zero sum with each other. Like the, everyone is helping grow the pie, but I think say directly through the market makers and through the projects building on top is helping expand the ecosystem. At the moment of the recording, say has a little bit over 50 teams that are building on top of say. Um, and all of these teams are teams that have generally come over from places like um, Solana, Terra, Nier, and Polkadot. Um, and basically all of these teams are already established teams in the sense they've raised venture capital funding in the past, and they don't really have to think about grants or like how they're going to be raising money in the near term. Um, but we've also chatted with a bunch of folks that are interested in building, but don't really have the resources to get started. Um, for example, a lot of my friends are Robinhood. They're interested in getting involved in Web3, but a grant or some kind of um, commitment to fundraising in the future would be very helpful. Well, that's very exciting. Thank you. <laughs> this was definitely the most technical interview that I've, that I've done so far. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> that's great. Thank you all for listening and hope you got the alpha. 
Thanks for tuning in to Interchain FM. As always, I will read through the pages of white papers and condense only the alpha for you in a one hour long digest. Be sure to subscribe to Chango and Chain's YouTube channel to be up to date about the latest technology and never miss a live streamed episode.